Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon. Welcome to the MTech Access Words of Wisdom webinar. I'm Tom Clark, and I'm particularly excited to be speaking with our first returning guest on the webinar, uh, who joined me last June to talk about the future of the NHS. So now we're in the future. Um, I'm delighted to welcome back Stefa Doucet, who is currently the Chief Executive of St. Oswald's Hospice in Newcastle, a role that Steph started during the pandemic uh, under very tough circumstances and, and uh, will give us a bit of an insight into some of the positive things that have happened there. Um, the hospice provides specialist care for adults, babies, children and young adults across the northeast of England, it takes a proactive approach to integrated care, working with NHS providers across the region. Uh, Steph will give us a bit more insight into that. Um, prior to this, Steph has, has had a really uh, broad stellar career in, in and around healthcare. Uh, previously Chief Executive of TELUS North, which hosts Healthwatch Newcastle and Gateshead. Uh, she's also held a variety of leadership and operational positions across various different uh, health-based organisations. So Steph is perfectly placed to give us the perspective on personalised care, population health and, and how to get the voice of the individual at the centre of, of the future of integration. So Steph, welcome. Good to have you, you back. For those, <laughs> yeah, well, I had to abridge it slightly, but we got there in the end. Um, for, for those in the audience that didn't see you last time or that don't know you, can you just briefly summarise uh, your, your organisation and your current role? Yeah, so I am Chief Executive of St Oswald's Hospice, as you say, which is a reasonably large hospice based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, we provide a huge range of services, so we have everything from um, babies through to young adults in our children and young adults service, and that provides um, a number of different things. So we do respite care for children and young adults with complex needs, um, and what that means is we tend, because we're specialist area, we tend to get children who have quite rare conditions and multiple conditions um, and we support them through for as long as they need our level of support. Unfortunately, sometimes that means that they do die um, when they're um, in, still within our care, but actually a lot are growing and going off to university and actually getting to the point now that they're 25 and have to leave our service and that presents huge challenges it's one of the reasons that we put our young adult service in was because they just kind of dropped off the edge of a cliff at 18. We do support end-of-life care for the children and young adults as well fortunately that's fairly rare um, because children tend to either are so ill that they die in hospital or they die at home um, so it's it's rarer that we have, actually have children that die in the unit, but we support them on the run up to their death in a number of occasions. And then our adult service is is many and varied. So again, specialist ends of care, we do um, do what we call interventional care. 
we can actually have people in our care for years um, and they'll come as outpatients and then gradually come to an inpatient stage. And again, if people want to die at home, we support them to do that. But we do have a number of people who they and their families just feel more comfortable. Their pain is better managed if they're actually with us at, at the end of their lives. And we have a, a large lymphedema service as well. Um, and that started really because we were treating cancer patients who had lymphedema. Um, but that's now expanded into a fully commissioned service and we take lymphedema that's got any cause um, and we have an outpatient service and that's changed dramatically as you can imagine under the, the pandemic and um, really starting to make some huge differences to the way that that service is delivered um, and the impact that we can potentially make. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Steph. And I, I know certainly it's true for me and, and possibly in our audience, there might be preconceptions about what hospices are or what they do um, or even a, a lack of understanding. Can you just give us some examples of what you're doing differently and dispel some of those myths around hospices and what hospices are? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is a hospice is not a sad place. Um, yes, we do have people who are dying and we have people who die, but actually um, we're very much about helping people to live and to live lives to the full. Um, so we spend a lot of time working with individuals around what it is that they want. So, for example, we had a, a relatively young mother who just wanted to make memories for her children. And we arranged to, uh, she wanted to make s'mores actually with her kids. So we arranged to get a fire pit in and um, we managed to get all of the stuff and they went out into the garden in the evening and they had a really nice family evening busy planning Father's Day and all of the things that we're going to do around that. There's normally, in normal times, there's lots of music, there's activity, we have um, animals that come in. Last year we had, in this year as well actually, we've had chicks hatching on the children's um, unit. Um, so it's all about activity and fun and really bringing meaning. Um, we do have a big bereavement service as well, so even once somebody has died, we continue to support the families beyond that in whatever way that they need from us, really. Um, so when I had my interview for the job, yeah, really buzzing, vibrant place, less so now. But having said that, just this week, I walked in in the morning and I could hear that they were running a children's music session. And it was great to hear that, you know, all the music going on and everything. And then there was a, a, a man in later who his wife died with us and he's continuing to get support and he's preparing for a concert. Um, so he was singing away um, lots of uh, swinger and music um, that he was, was singing. And it's just really nice to be in that kind of really caring, really positive environment. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, to me, it sounds like that is the epitome of personalised care, that you are whatever your, your um, sort of your residents, uh, your users' health needs might be. Actually, it's it's not specifically about that. It's about returning to normality or giving people a, a, as good a life as they can do. Is that is that the right way to summarise that? Yeah, it is. It's, it's all about actually, what do you want to do? What is it? What is it you want to achieve? How is it that you want to spend the rest of your life? Um, and how can we make it happen? So very, very personalised, regardless of background. One of the, the discussions we're having is because we're called St. Oswald's, people think that you have to be Christian. It's going to be run by nuns. Couldn't be further than the truth, really. Um, so yeah, we we just 
really try to understand what's right for that individual and make sure they get the care and the experiences that they yeah, so so that's something that obviously in your sector and, and hospices and similar organisations, you're really good at that and, and you have the, the time and the resource and the desire, the motivation to really work closely with individuals. What are you, Would your reflections on the NHS be that they're able to do that? I mean, the, the, the integration agenda is all around personalised care and putting the focus on the individual. Do you think there's a lot that the NHS could be learning from the voluntary sector? huge amounts um so as you said my background is the nhs and i've worked alongside them for more years than i like to think of now um and i think one of the challenges is that when the nhs talks around personalized care they don't really mean personalized care what they mean is we'll give you the care that we think you need and it's still very much that medical model um, so actually, I've had many conversations with doctors who've got quite frustrated when patients um, won't do what they're told to do because they don't understand that actually what they're being told to do is not necessarily what they want. And that that puts constraints on their life that means that their life is not as worth living as it would be without them. Um, so that whole thing about really having shared decision making and it's okay for a patient to say, no, that's not what I want. We're still a long way away from that. And really there's a lot of work that needs to go um, behind supporting clinicians to understand that whilst they may have the knowledge, they're not necessarily going to be the, the people that will decide what happens. I always uh, um, describe healthcare the way it should be as being like a sat-nav. So if you think about a sat-nav in your car, it tells you which way you should turn, but you've got a choice as to whether you turn that way or not. And if you don't go left when it tells you to and you turn right, the sat-nav then reconfigures the route. And at the minute, what it's doing is it keeps trying to get you to do a U-turn and go back the way that, that you were going. What we really need is that point with the, with the sat-nav where it suddenly goes, okay, I'm giving up on that old route, I'm calculating a new route that's what it should be. It should have that discussion about, well, this is the way I recommend you go, but actually if that's not right for you, how do we get you to that end point anyway, but in a way that's right for you? Brilliant. I think I've got a new favourite analogy, Steph. I think that, <laughs> that's a fantastic way to summarise it. So as, as obviously the NHS wants to focus more on the personalised element of care and giving everyone all or that that's the sort of policy direction, I suppose, giving everyone the time and the attention they need. There's obviously constraints around resource to be to be able to do that. And the other objective of, of integrated care is population health. So looking out for needs across a, a population level. To me, there's a bit of a, a tension there between the personalised bit and the population bit. What do you think are the main challenges in, in being able to focus at both ends and, and how can that be managed? Uh, I suppose they're done by very different groups almost. So the personalised care I always see is about that interaction between an individual clinician um, and that patient or a group, a team and that patient. Um, so that's very much in the now, what, what do we need to do for you? The whole population health thing is really about saying, so actually let's look at the needs of our entire population. Um, I think where it gets really challenging is there's a real um, risk then that you say, well, actually, you know what, 80 or 90% of our population need X, so that's what we do. 
And the problem with that is it's the 10 or 20% that actually are the complex people who will end up using the service to quite an extent. Um, and they either get lost and just fall out of the system completely, or like I say, they, they really start using the services and then they get labelled as using the services inappropriately. So the real challenge, I think, on a population health basis is really understanding that population to a quite a complex level and designing the 80% for the 80%, but making sure that you have that special um, approach and service for the people that will find that difficult. Um, certainly when I was in Healthwatch, a lot of the work that we did was around when somebody didn't fit that box. So there was something that just meant that whatever was the normal route wasn't right for them. Mm -hmm. And they would then just get computer says no, and they just get rejected from the system. And, and that's when things started to go wrong and people started to get upset and angry complaining and all that type of thing, because computer had said no, because the computer algorithms not set up for them and their, their particular service. And they weren't able to flex because I think a lot of us, we can, you know, we go, all oh, right, well, it's not perfect, but I can, I can handle that, I can cope with that. But this twenty percent tend not to be able to change and place. Yeah. Okay. And that that that's a really interesting perspective. And I'm I'm thinking that for that group that you're talking about, that they're often found almost by exception late on in the process. So they haven't fitted anything else, and therefore they're left. And and that in itself is probably detrimental. That through that process they've. Um, you know, their, their condition may have worsened or they may have encountered further problems that have become challenge, challenges. How can you hear their voices, find them, whatever it might be, earlier on to capture their, to, 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 to understand the challenges and, and be able to deliver what they need before it gets too late? Um, and I would say that's where the BCS comes in really, really handy because quite often, the voluntary community sector are working with those people. Mm. Um, so they, you know, that's just by the nature of, of, of the voluntary community sector, you tend to set up around a need. Um, so actually there will be groups out there that really understand the, the needs of people who are homeless or who really understand the needs of um, deprived working class backgrounds or of uh, people from black, Asian, minority, ethnic backgrounds plural um, and the very complex um, nature that, that they can present. So there's um, actually reaching out and listening and asking them to talk to their clients and service users to find out actually, so we're thinking about designing this service or redesigning or reprovising or whatever, what would be the, the impact on that client group? is the right way to go. And unfortunately, what, what a lot of the time the health service has done is it's gone, we're going to change something, come and tell us what you think. Mm. And not surprisingly, the people that come and tell us are the people who would use the service anyway, because they're the ones that can engage with that. Um, so you tend to get lots of replication of the same thing and the same people get left out all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's been something I think in the last year has really been brought into focus about the sort of equity of access and, and health inequalities in you know, COVID in, in terms of people with a different conditions. So diabetes was the, has been the one that's become prominent, obviously, uh, particularly South Asian populations and, and you know, 
ethnic minority populations more broadly as well, variously affected. Um, and I think that's probably something that's become more in everyone's consciousness is that actually it, there are these real impacts depending on different different um, factors, I suppose, for different cohorts. So when thinking about improving equity of access to services in the future, so those people that are currently unheard or unseen or whatever the best phrase to use is, what are the key things for, for systems to focus on to be able to better engage and better find and better support them? Um, there's a there's a huge issue around education and that's education of those populations so one of the real problems is if you don't know you don't look so if you um if you've never encountered a service before which is the case with a lot of migrant populations or um if you're just not aware that a service even exists because it didn't when you were growing up um or you don't know that a certain condition has certain symptoms, you won't go looking for that help and support. And I think that's one of the big factors in inequity is that people don't know, so they don't ask. And um, whereas where you get really more educated with the Google population, they go and they search everything, they go and they ask and they demand because they're aware that there's something out there. So there's something about really working to um, educate and improve that health literacy among certain populations and that's a, that's a huge thing that needs to be done but there's also we need to move away from this huge monolith um kind of services that we have they still we still have services that are centered around um hospitals mm -hmm. um gp practices even quite often talk about gp practices and how they're embedded in the community mm, yeah maybe not so in the Yes, it may be placed within a community, <coughs> excuse me, but quite often the clinicians come in. <coughs> yeah, so they're coming into that community and they perceive the people around them and the people that they treat with the lens of where they come from. Mm. So if you live out in a leafy borough and have children that go to a very nice secondary school or even a private school, um, and actually that's, that was your experience growing up, but you have a GP practice in a very poor working class area, you perceive that the people in that way. And I've had conversations with GPs before where, um, you know, single male GP who's quite fit and active was turning around to his patients and saying well the problem the reason you've got this problem is because you're fat and they go oh I know doctor but you know I'm trying you're not trying get yourself a bike go out for a ride do some exercise sounds perfectly logical until you realize that actually that's a single mother with three kids under five and is, she's really struggling just to keep on top of the bills, the housework, the kids, everything else. Never mind going out for a bike ride. Um, so sometimes there's that real mismatch, I think, even within GP practices. So it's really about breaking things down, bringing in far more diverse um, roles and practitioners. I think it's one of the areas where social prescribing, if it was taken to, to quite an extreme where people were social, people who were being prescribed to were actually coming into the practices and working out of the practices and people 
therefore all of the practice staff then got to learn more about the communities that they were in i think that could make a massive difference but yeah definitely you know hospitals are fantastic i've worked in them and, and I, I love hospitals just as a, a place to observe life but they um but you know what they're they are places where you go when you're broken mm-hmm. and you go hopefully you're fixed and then you should be moved on as quickly as possible and we still don't have that we still have an element of actually it's the point of first resort for a lot of people um, and we still have some clinicians who are really reluctant to go out of hospitals to deliver services it's still about you've got to come to us mm-hmm. might be one of the things that's changed with covid and some of that remote uh, practice that's taken place so it'll be interesting to see how things change over the next year with that one yeah absolutely yeah and, and i think we're all hoping there will be a bit of a, a shift but that, that idea of the hospital is, is somewhere you go when you're broken um just jumps out at me that i wonder if you know and, and, uh, interested in your view on whether maybe there are people that think they're broken when they're not or there are people who don't know when they're broken effectively so i'm, I'm thinking of people that are at home with you know conditions or or complaints and they're just sucking it up and getting on with it because they you know they don't know any different or there's those people who are maybe in a very difficult situation whatever it might be um and see all this stuff going wrong and think i must be broken because everything's wrong therefore i'm going to go and seek seek things out when actually a little bit of support in a different way might be the solution for them yeah, and, and I think, yes, you're right, you, you, we get both. I think that, that first thing about the, the people who think they're broken when they're not, I think it's more that um, one of the things I've found quite often is that people need some help. Hmm. They, they just And if you speak to them, they'll say, I just need somebody to help me. But they're not getting the help that they need. So quite often, and this happens with GPs as well, quite often what they need is they need help with the housing. But they can't get help with their housing so they then get down so they're depressed nobody will listen to them they end up at hospital or they end up with the gps oh, yeah. um and it's kind of I've, I've actually heard words coming out of people's mouths i've tried i can't get any help so i thought i'd come here because once i'm here somebody's got to do something so in a e departments back in my old job in health watch we did 48 hours in a e um, doing a survey with people and it was fascinating just listening to people and having conversations with them and, and things like that and the amount of people that would just I don't know where else to go mm. I just need help I need help and I need reassurance so I think sometimes a lot of people are labeled as oh they're a bit feckless you know they're just turning up and but it's because there's nothing else and if they knew there was something else they'd probably use it because um, nobody wants to go to A&E at three o'clock on a Saturday morning um, and sit around five hours. That's not fun, especially not when you've got Newcastle and all the and, you know, it's not an entertaining place to be, but it's not a fun place to be. Um, so that's that's not a choice anybody makes. It's because they're scared, they're, they're um, desperate. There's a whole range of things. That other point you made, though, about the people who don't know that there's an issue, massive, massive. Mm. particularly amongst um more deprived communities where actually that level of health is fairly low anyway 
Um, it's something I live in southeast Northumberland, and it's uh, we still have kind of the legacy of coal mining and, and heavy industry um, up here. So you have people who have a really bad cough. This is not nothing to do with COVID. They've got a really bad cough, and you go, "That's a bad cough," and you go, they go, "Oh yeah, but I've had it all my life. It's uh, it's from mining or it's from the shipyard." And then it's normally a man, and our wife will say, "Yeah, it's got a bit, of, bit worse. Oh, it's just a." And they don't think actually this might be something. Mm. Um, so so many times we find that people just don't realise, or they're scared because mm. they think actually, well, if I have got lung cancer, I'm going to die. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, up here in the northeast, that's pretty true at the minute because lung cancer is diagnosed so late because people don't go to get it diagnosed, that actually, you, you know, you you kind of got, the prognosis is, is poor. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of fear in there, but actually there's a lot of people just don't know. Yeah. Don't know what the symptoms are. They think it's normal. They go, oh, well, everybody around here has got whatever. Um, and uh, so they just think that's just the way things are. And it's one thing I have found, people talk about, expectations of the general public and how they're very demanding and things i've found a lot of people don't ask enough they settle mm. um, and this is not just old people once a doctor says to them yeah well you need this is the problem and you just need to go away and put up with it they go away and they put up with it mm. um and then you know you have a conversation with them and you go no you shouldn't be putting up with that you shouldn't yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, actually, there's there's a fair portion of people are not demanding enough. Mm. So yeah, we we have a lot of conversations around uh, you know hidden burden of disease or unmet need and various different ways to categorise the same problem. Where there are people out there with conditions who are not accessing the healthcare services that that we'd expect them to, or that that maybe might benefit them. So what I'm taking from you is that it's not just a case of we haven't done the audit we haven't found the people but actually even when you've engaged with them there are societal cultural whatever it might all, all these various different problems that might then impact on how and why they they're accessing or not accessing care yeah and, and actually diabetes is a really good one so really high prevalence amongst um black african descent people and southeast asians you talk to somebody in those communities who um, who lives within kind of high density um, of those communities, and you say to them, you know what, you're pre-diabetic. They'll go, yeah, because mm. why wouldn't they be? Because everybody that they know is. Yeah. That's just what happens. There's not there's not a recognition of actually this is preventable because everybody that we know or most people that we know of this and um, it's something actually if you look at obesity so that has become kind of it happens when you get older you, you put on a bit of weight and the amount of people because i'm getting to a certain age the amount of people who say mind when you hit the menopause you lose that figure it's an expectation it's mm. that kind of oh you know you'll get fat when you get old um or particularly with women, when you have kids, you'll put on weight. So then actually being overweight becomes the norm and you can't do anything about it because you're a mother or you're, yeah. you're menopausal or 
year over 50 or whatever. Um, so that that's across all, almost the whole of society, I think. But yeah, there is that kind of, that's just the way things are. Um, fatalism, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that you know, it it becomes an endemic thing, doesn't it? So, if if we're fast forwarding to a place where we've got a truly equitable health system and everyone's accessing the things that they need at the time they need, what difference would that make? Um, I truly think it would reduce the burden on the health service because actually, what we then have is people who are getting that social intervention that they need. Um, and I never get talking to, to somebody, and it was a doctor who said to me, you know, Steph, I can tell somebody to give up smoking, but if their life's falling apart around them, I'm wasting my time because they don't want to think about giving up smoking. We need to get their life sorted out. So a lot of what happens in health is actually as a result of that element of things. So if we have a really integrated um, service that provided an equitable across what we have is a lot less pressure on the health end of things because we're addressing those social needs but actually we'd have people that when things do happen would know exactly where to go and how to get that service um, the ideal is actually that you just have one place that you go um, and, and or it doesn't matter where you go you all end up in the same place and and all, all, all Kind of steered from there um but that actually it wouldn't matter at all and i don't know that we'll ever get there because there's some huge um interpersonal things that go on within the provision of care that will always impact on um, the equity services so until we change this thing where men will not talk about their health um unless of course they're really just got a cold and then they do nothing but um, but you know when when men think they're actually ill they don't talk about it and they hide it massive stereotype but um i've seen it played out so many times and actually men when i was at health watch would not answer questionnaires because the wife would do it um so until we move away from some of that type of negative stereotypes that, that we have and, and negative behaviors that we have until we move away from Actually, if you belong to, if you are homeless, um, then there's no point in really worrying about the fact that you've got really bad teeth because you're homeless. That's not something we need to worry about. The fact that that then makes it more likely to get infection and um, harder to eat is neither here nor there because, uh, and that's some of the stuff that we're, that we're really battling against. Um, so we'd have to massively change all of that as well as changing the systems and processes and structures. Do you think integration can mitigate some of these challenges or, or make a real difference to, to health inequalities in particular? Proper integration, yeah, definitely. Um, I think when we talk about integration, often we talk about health and social care, and that's great and it's a start, um, but it's not the be all and end all. And actually what we should be looking at is how do we make sure that um, police and crime services are also plugged into that? How to make sure that the voluntary community sector is an equal partner um, within um, integration rather than an afterthought. Um, you know, how can we make sure that we have education as part of that integration? So if you're just talking about health and social care, 
it's probably not going to make that much difference. It'll help and it would be good. But if you're talking about this kind of true system wide integration, where we're looking at all of the factors that impact on people's lives, positively or negatively, then yes, that, that could really solve the, the problems and the challenges. Yeah, okay. So in terms of the, the current roadmap, we've got the, the taxonomy of, of ICS, PLACE and PCN, which will be adapted locally according to how, how people see fit. How do, you, <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how do you think, or do, do you think that's the right kind of setup for things? And, and how do you think that might work in practice? Um, I think it, it, well, I think the in practice is the really important bit. So there's a lot of sense in having bigger, um, a bigger footprint view of things because there are some things like, for example, the children's services that we offer. Um, really, we are the only place that offers it in the northeastern Cumbria. So actually, it would make sense to have a region wide approach to that kind of care. Um, you know, when you're talking about that super specialist, and I think that is one of the things that was lost when they got rid of um, strategic health authorities was that let's have that big picture look at things, workforce, let's look at it beyond just this organisation, let's look at it on a, a regional footprint. Having said that, and the reason I said it's about the practice, some ICSs are very small. Mm. And if it's really small, then actually you're not going to get that benefit. Um, I think some ICSs are smaller than the ICP that I'm going to be part of. So, it's, um, And then if we look at the other end of the spectrum, PCNs, if a PCN makes sense in terms of the population that it serves, then yeah, again, that makes sense. You can work together as, as a group of practices. You can look at and a back office, what you do together and how you can really um, make things more efficient and make sure more money's out on the, the patient care side of things. But also you can say, well, actually, how can we deliver this better for this population who all have similar needs? But some PCNs have been grouped on that basis. So you can have very, very different populations in every possible way from economic to demographic within one PCN. So it's the practical application of it, I think. And that's where Unfortunately, the NHS falls down so often is that it becomes a, a small p political um, game as to how things pan out, rather than saying actually what is the right thing to do for our populations. Um, so yeah, take take the egos and the population out of it, and, and the um, politics out of it, and I think it makes as much sense as a, any other structure, and a lot more than some of the suggestions that we've had over the last few years yeah okay and and by design i suppose to some degree there is the ability to vary things according to populations that's i suppose the intention of, of integrated care but there's a danger that if things are delegated too much then we might return to sort of postcode variations that that sort of uh, that sort of concept so i think particularly given your your experience at health watch and, and everything else that you've done how do you mitigate that variation or, or the unwarranted variation? So thinking either between ICSs or even within a single system, you know, you talked about good PCNs versus bad PCNs or more engaged versus less engaged, however you want to characterize it. What, what can you do as a, as a system, system leader to mitigate some of that variation? 
Um, there's, I think there's a this thing of actually there's a lot about standards. So certainly when our RCS was coming together, they were talking about well, what we'll do is we'll set the standards that are expected, but the way in which they're applied locally will vary depend on depending on the needs. So if you know that everybody's coming up to a certain sorry, that's my dog you can see in the corner of the screen. Um, if, if they're coming up to a certain um, a certain standard, then you're okay there, but a lot of it is about information. Mm. Um, and certainly when I was at Health Watch, one of the things I used to say all the time to industry was, if you know that something has been delivered in Sunderland, that it's nice guidance, but it's not been delivered in Newcastle and Gateshead, tell me. Mm. Because I don't have access to that knowledge, but actually if it means that the, pe the people of Newcastle and Gateshead are not getting what they should be getting, I want to know about it because I then want to question other system leaders about that. So I think there's a lot about that kind of having that information about what's going on locally and how and um, what the outcomes are like as well. Because that's the other thing. If it's, you know, nice guidance in one area, not in another, but actually the outcomes are the same. Is that you? Um, perhaps not. Um, so really being able to have that data and have that openness and shared data and that is one of the things i'm hopeful will come out is actually that people will be a lot more open about what's going on and about the the outcomes that, that we're seeing across an area um but i think that's going to be one of the biggest things is about actually making sure that people are aware of where things are not um shaping up and where there are those those differences um across probably not so much the pcns i think it'll come to place level where we'll start to see the variation between one place and another um, yeah, depending okay. on the that they're making yeah so so for some of our audience who work you know in in the pharmaceutical industry and others where they are you know trying to disseminate nice guidance and uh, help with that leveling up um or that consistent application that example you gave where you know if it's been done in Sunderland not in Gateshead then you want to hear about it I guess you've sort of suggested that's not just a conversation of going to Gateshead and say you've got to do this but it's another it's part of the puzzle and then you're having a conversation around how might this apply locally what what's good about it for Gateshead what what, what are the reasons why it's not working so is, is is that fair that it's just a part of a conversation rather than the be all and end all yeah yeah, it is because, like, like I say, if if actually there's a really valid reason for that, the population of Gateshead have completely different needs, and this is the way we're addressing it instead. And look, the outcomes are the same. Then, like I say, there's there's no real problem there. But if you don't have that information in the first place, um, you you don't know to look. And I think that's one of the things as well that quite often people don't realise within the NHS. You don't have time to look at everything mm. so there are things that are going on that you just don't know i remember when i was in the ambulance service that we couldn't hit the the waiting time target in um the response time target rather in northumberland um and the ambulance service always said well rural and then i went to the ccg in northumberland and we were looking at ambulance response time and, and one of our informatics people did a little bit of was a dream and found out that if we got eight more cases a year, 
um, hitting that response time target, then the whole of Northumberland would hit the response time target. And the place where we really needed to get them is southeast Northumberland, where most of the people live in the county. So whilst the ambulance service thought we've got to look at the rural areas and we can't because we, we can't possibly afford that, actually what they needed to do was put a car in southeast Northumberland to get that mm. target. Now that's about targets and does that target really matter? I don't know, but it did for the people of Northumberland. They cared mm. about it. Um, so, so actually, there's something that if you don't know what to look at, you miss so much. Um, and it tends to be the things that do have targets attached to them that get looked at. Yeah. So, or if you if you're looking at a field where actually there's no there's no cancer involved, it's not something that puts people through A and or not something that people would think puts people in A and E. Um, then you've got to start highlighting it. It just won't. They haven't got time to have that mm. kind of grasp, um, particularly when you're talking to the commissioners and things. If they don't have the knowledge to be able to, oh, we better look at, I don't know, I'm not a clinician. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you, you raised the the issue of targets or the, the subject of targets there. Going into the future NHS and, and particularly given your, your interest and your background, do you think the measures attached with care, provision of care, population health need to change? Yeah, very much so. I mean, one of the ones that we grapple with at the minute is um, length of stay. So um, we we haven't had it recently, but we frequently have a discussion about length of stay for um, our patients. And we're told that the length of stay should be 12 days. And our length of stay is longer. Hmm. And we go, yeah, but that's because you're looking at your average patient. We don't deal with average patients, we deal with specialist patients. And we can get into this whole battle about length of stay and whether it's appropriate or not. But actually, it's a pretty meaningless target, um, and particularly one from a commissioner's perspective. Um, so there's lots of targets out there that just, they, they force you into really quite absurd practice sometimes. So if we were going to say, well, we're going to focus on that and to say, we'd be discharging people who would then come straight back because their pain wasn't manageable. And actually we'd be giving them exactly what we don't want to give them, which would be rubbish care. Mm. And so I think there needs to be a, a huge look at, at some of those levers and targets that, that the NHS in particular has um, and really make look at, well, do they, do they actually do what we want them to do? Um, I know that the things like the A&E waiting time target and things are, are, are reviewing them because actually, yeah, it, it did a lot of good, but it also has a lot of problems with it when, um, and it, it did lead to some um, practice that probably wasn't in the best interest of anybody. Um, but my fear is that it'll just be replaced by something else that's equally as bad. I'd love to see us moving more towards outcome targets rather than input targets. Um, we have lots of how quickly did you get the bum on the seat, not did you then sort the bum out when it was on the seat. Um, and I think we need far more of that because that's what's really important. Um, you know, people would much rather wait an extra week and get it sorted than getting quickly bounce out, come back again, bounce out, and, and that yeah. happens. Yeah, and and I, I suppose outcome and experience measures are, 
are more typically associated with voluntary sector charitable organisations. Um, in terms of how that links up, sort of patient experience measures and, and, and outcomes, those sorts of things, with what the NHS is trying to measure, how well does your data link up? Do you have access to NHS data? Do they have access to yours? Um, well, we, we use System 1, um, so we can access patient data. And we are having conversations about um, getting access to the Great North Care Record in, um, in our hospice, which would be great from that respect. But we're not fantastic at, um, at sharing data. One of the things that we're looking at actually is just our demographic data, because we don't use similar data sets to the NHS. Now, having seen the NHS data sets, I think there's a rubbish and we're not going to change. Um, we, need, we need to improve ours, not take a step back. Um, but um, but yeah, that I don't think that, that there is that great information sharing. <clears throat> it has got a bit better with um, social care, but when it comes to the voluntary sector, not so much. Um, there's still that barrier of information governance gets put. And I think the other thing you have to remember with the voluntary sector is you have some big organisations like ours that can handle the whole NHS IG toolkit and things like that. But a lot of the voluntary sector organisations are actually quite small. And that's a massive burden and a massive cost to put on a small organisation. So there needs to be a, a different way to get around that, I think, um, so that we can make sure that information is shared in a meaningful way um, and that we can really start to track these patients through the community into secondary care if that's where they end up and, and out again because it's it's not happening particularly well at the moment. Yeah okay so at, at the outset you talked a bit about your lymphedema service and um, there's, there's other things that, that you're doing really well and, and increasingly doing. Could you give us a couple of examples of ways in which you're influencing service changes locally and, and how you go about drop well if you start with a couple of examples and we'll get a bit into the rest of it after that well one of one of the big things is that everything that we're doing we're trying to get underpinned by research so we've all um we have set up a research center um because research in palliative and end-of-life care is just rubbish and children's palliative and end-of-life care is even more rubbish um so we're trying to really start to do a lot of research around um the care and the way that we do things and um, so that we can kind of have a real evidence base to some of the stuff that, that hasn't been there in the past but yeah and this is some of the stuff that's come about as, as part of the pandemic of um really starting to look at how we can work very closely with hospitals and help them with some of their problems so they do have capacity problems and um, we've had clinicians talking to each other so our our clinicians work very closely with the secondary care clinicians and um, recognising that, for example, we have patients who are on weekly blood transfusions who've been going into um, the hospital, sitting in a not very nice room in a plastic chair for hours having a blood transfusion, and that blood transfusion saves their life. If they don't have it, they will die. They are on that trajectory anyway, um, but this is prolonging their life. <coughs> But they're not complex. There's nothing about, they're not getting any other intervention from the hospital at the time, they're just getting a blood transfusion. So what we're doing is we're piloting at the moment, we have 10 patients who are coming to capacity that's been freed up because we're not bringing as many people in. 
they're going into a nice room, a nice chair, they get to look out on the garden um, and they're having their blood transfusion there instead. Side benefit of that for the hospital, they've freed up capacity so they can bring in more complex patients that they do need to do stuff with. Um, the patients though are, are coming in and they're really keen and eager to start developing their end of life plans because they know they are dying. Hmm. So it was kind of, you know, they came through the door with, right, I'm in a hospice, I need to talk to you about what's going to happen when I die. Um, and so we were a bit reluctant to open that subject, but no, they, they jumped straight in. So that's been a real benefit there. And we know that so far, it's only gone a couple of months, but so far going really, really well. There's things like um, iron transfusion we can do. Um, there's a whole host of different things that we can do that's currently happening in hospital, but actually we have people coming to us. And these are all patients that are end of life. Um, mm. So actually they'd be getting that extra benefit. And it also brings in income for the hospice as well. But it gives us that we know as a hospice, we miss a whole lot of patients because they're never referred to us for support. Mm. And one of the things that we want to do is to, I say, help people live while they're dying and have the best possible death that they can have. So if this means that we reach more patients and help them to do that, then that's an added bonus for us as well. So it's kind of win-win-win um, yeah. situation. Yeah. So, I mean, that it immediately sort of brings to mind, you know, anything that's an infusion, um, lots of patients who may be cancer patients or complex you mentioned rare diseases as well all of these where there's lots of high cost interventions as it as it is and through integration systems are going to want to reduce costs around that particularly if there's you know certain elements that are fixed in there so that's a really strong message i suppose that actually there's a whole world out there of hospices and and probably lots of other types of organizations that are kind of ready made to be part of that solution yeah how, how do you how do you go about initiating that change? Is that the NHS has come to you? Is it you going to the NHS? And and what do you need to start doing those things? In, inevitably, it is going to the NHS, um, particularly locally. I think what, um, other areas where there's been real capacity problems within hospitals um, during kind of the acute phases of the pandemic. Um, hospices were approached to take patients and, and that's, that's helped a little bit there. But actually it's very much just going, okay, so another example, lymphedema. We know there are a number of patients who are sitting on wards in hospitals who have lymphedema. It's probably been misdiagnosed, it's definitely been miscoded and it's extending length of stay. And we know length of stay for hospitals is something they do need to get down as a class rather than targets. So we're having to go to the hospitals and say, look, we could set something up where we come, we've got some specialists can come in, they can do a ward round and we can identify patients with lymphedema and stop treatment, which will come out sooner. Now, we, we did try this a few years ago and it wasn't very well received by the hospital involved, I don't know which one it was because it was kind of like, well, you might make us look bad, but actually we've seen a real change now mm. in that people are going, that sounds good, actually, that, that would be useful. Um, but I do think it have to do with the VCS and hospices and, and the like. Moment it is still about us going to the NHS. How that may be made easier is will depend on the structures that are around things like ICPs and ICSs. If the VCS is involved in that and properly involved in that, 
that will be a really good place to do it. Actually, mm -hmm. and, all, and organize things where we say, right, we've got an issue here. This is a challenge for health or this is a challenge for social care. Let's get everybody metaphorically around the table and work out how we can help that. Um, but at the moment, I'm not sure that that's the way things are, are being set up. Um, and it's still being seen very much as a who has to be in the room and we're only going to have the people that have to be rather than the people that maybe should be. Yeah, so okay. So to go on that one, I think. And I, I guess, I mean, that that's true across the piece, really, all health and social care organisations. There's still a lot of trust building going on there. Oh, it, it, in terms of that piece around you going to the hospital with a with an idea, what are the big issues for them at the moment? If you walked in the door and said, we can save you money, we can reduce capacity, we can do this, that, the other. What are the things that are really on their priority list? Um, I think almost universally now for hospitals, it's getting out. And mm. um, that's that's the big pressure. It's it's what can, what can we get out of here to be delivered somewhere else? Um, now, whether that's still done under the umbrella of them or whether that's done by somebody else, I don't think matters so much. It's about we need to get this out. Mm. Um, and I think there's a huge amount of drivers for that. Some it is capacity, they've got real capacity issues. Um, but actually, there's also some some national push to um, get things out of hospitals. Um, finance is not so much of an issue for many at the moment, but will become that way very soon and sometimes finance isn't the driver that you think it is because actually it can mean then that people want to hang on to activity because it gets yeah. money coming in um, so looking at creative ways in which um, that can be managed I think is is, is going to be fairly crucial as well but the key message that I'm hearing is get stuff out of the hospital. Yeah is, is there anything in there about I was going to say quality of care, but I, I'm sure they wouldn't see it that way. But, you know, patient experience, I suppose, that if they're that, that example of the transfusions sitting in a comfy chair and looking out of the garden versus, you know, a, a generic ward or a, a room where, you know, it feels very hospital. It, are there any considerations around that or is that not a thing for, for hospitals at the moment? If you asked it like that, they'd go, oh, yes, absolutely. Um, no, it's not. I mean, I, just on Twitter the other day, there was a... Um, a, a secondary care clinician who was saying, you know, I'm really mindful of how busy GPs are and how much it's annoying when when you get a letter from a secondary care clinician that says, please follow up X, Y, and Z. So if I asked you to do X test, would that be a problem? And there were all these doctors having this very great discussion about it. And I said, yeah, it really depends on the patient, doesn't it? It might be better for the patient to go to the local GP practice than trundle up to hospital. Mm -hmm. That comment didn't go down as well, as, <laughs> but but there is that element of um, that. I think we've still got what is best for us as clinicians, what's best for the hospital or the organisation, and actually sometimes what might be best for the patient comes secondary or or tertiary. It's there's there's still not this. Actually, this this might be just better. And yes, it might mean that it's more difficult or um, it's more work, but it's just better for that person. And going back to that um, conversation we had about um, access and equity and things, if you make it easier for a patient to do the right thing, they'll do it. Mm. 
if you make it hard, they're less likely to do it. So if somebody's got a three hour round trip to get a test, they might not get the test. If they're just nipping to their local GP practice that's five minutes down the road or whatever, chances are they'll do it. But mm. that doesn't ever seems to be a factor when people are making the decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that again is that thing between what what level does it make sense to do that at? For for you with your hyper specialist stuff, then some people are gonna have that journey for uh long term conditions, everyone's got a GP practice and, and that's probably the place to do it. But again, even you're talking about Northumberland and the big areas up there, even that is a, a challenge sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, and, and we're pushing, you know, our lymphedema service, we're really working on pushing that out into communities, delivering from hubs. We've pandemics made us start delivering some of that in people's homes and um, we're doing training. So we get people in once, we train them how to do the dressings themselves and then we get remote support from us. So what really made us think about how we can make that care as close to home as possible um but actually if you need a bed you're gonna have to come into the bed and i think that's yeah. always gonna be the way there's you know um we are thinking thinking about and having discussions about how we can have some beds talking about northumberland that are closer to people so they don't have to come to newcastle um but actually for that really specialist end of care probably gonna have to still travel yeah so so for you thinking about expanding services like that what are the challenges for you is it money people estate combination um a lot of it is again it's that small people political so if i think about northumberland there are two hospices at home there's a, a um a trust that delivers palliative care and there's ourselves so actually the ideal is that we all come together and we come up with the best solution for the population together that's more difficult than us just going in and going, we're going to create a new service and then we go. So that's the, it's the complexity around making sure that all organisations are involved, people don't feel threatened by it, um, that everybody's um, giving their best because we know we're not the best at some things in the same way the hospital isn't in the same way that the, the hospice at home people aren't. So it's about actually what can we all bring to the table and then we develop the best from that. that needs a level of organisational maturity that not every organisation has. Um, it needs a bit of selflessness. And again, not everybody has that. Um, and, and normally, if you've got that, you've got that will, um, you can find a way financially to make things happen. But it's always the, the people and the politics. Mm. Where yeah, absolutely. So last question for today, Steph. I've, 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 I've don't want to stop but we're going to have to <laughs> but uh, do you do you see there's a role for industry to play as a partner to the to the vcs sector in the, the development of new new ways of delivering care yeah definitely um the the word of caution i would say to industry is that a lot of the vcs is very idealist so if you think a lot of a lot of charities and things are set up because something happened to somebody's daughter or you know somebody's father or whatever and it's a very personal very passionate thing that, that's been set up and they're run by very passionate and very idealist people and therefore the words business and pharma are dirt so you've mm. got to got to just be aware of that where you find that that idealism kind of meets pragmatism is when you're looking at larger charities 
because you've moved away from that really, really tight link. I mean, don't get me wrong, we still have it in, in St. Oswald's, but um, that really, really tight link with the founding story to that pragmatism of if we're going to do stuff and we're going to make things happen, we've got to do things. So definitely working with some of those larger um, charities and organisations to look at what can be done, how um, services can be improved, even just things like how um, how the data that is sitting within industry could help um, look at where um, services could be more targeted would be really, really great. And things like if, if things can be done um, on a kind of pro bono or volunteer type basis, that's a good way in um, to start looking at, you know, we've got this data, we'd really like to share it with you, we'd like to help you look at how you can improve that, that aspect of the service. That type of thing is probably going to be more welcome. Um, but it's, it's an area that really hasn't been tapped into much at all. And having worked in the NHS, worked with people like yourself, Tom, and now being um, in the role that I'm in, I can see huge opportunities there. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Steph. We're, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. It's always incredibly affirming speaking with you. So thank you. It's a good way for everyone to end the week, I think. So uh, <laughs> thank you, everyone at home, for, for tuning in again. Um, Follow us on LinkedIn on our, our Whispers page, the MTech Access page. Um, you can download the podcast now from Spotify and, and everywhere else that you might get your podcasts. And if you're curious about how we bring all of this insight into everything else we do at MTech, uh, please have a look at our website, mtechaccess.co.uk, and you can see how we bring all of this insight into our health economic work, our, our value proposition work, and everything else besides that. So. Uh, I'll be back on June the 30th with Helen Ray, who's the Chief Exec of North East Ambulance Service, uh, when we'll be talking about urgent and community care and, and how that's all changing and might change as systems integrate. So thanks again, Steph. Always good to see you. Thanks, everybody at home, and see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.